Well, good morning, everyone. I want to read from Psalm 66 uh, this morning, just a portion of it. It says, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is the power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name, Selah. And it's this universal call praise God uh, for who he is and the great deeds of what he has done. And that's why we come here today. And the universe is called to praise him, but we know that they don't today. We get this opportunity, this privilege to come here and worship God this morning. So I, I really want you to think about the God that you're worshiping today, the great deeds that he has done in the world, the great deeds that he has done in your life. Let him be glorified and worshiped because of what he has done for you. I just want you to think about some prayer requests for our uh, people. Tom Camella, we've been praying for him. Uh, he's been moved to an acute um, section right now. He is responsive, um, but he has been battling now for this last month. Uh, so we pray for him and pray for his family, pray for the medical uh, professionals, uh, pray for the number of people that struggled with COVID as well and welcome them back. And we see them over, there we go. Um, so it's so good to have you guys back and back to health. There have been a number of you that have struggled, and we pray uh, that God would continue his work in us and through us. Uh, once again, continue to pray for the Kelly family as well, Diana Kelly, and uh, just continue to lift these people up in prayer. So let's go to prayer here this morning. Lord, I just want to thank you and praise you for the awesome privilege that we have to shout for joy. Father, we, we use our mouths and we use our passions oftentimes to, to praise things here on earth, Father. Uh, musical leaders or movies or sports figures, Father. We, we throw all this passion into it. And yet we come into church at times, Father, and the God that we should be worshiping, the God that we should be passionate about, we, we lack it at times. Lord, please forgive us for that. Lord, I pray that you would help us to sing glory to your name. Help us to give glorious praise to you. Father, remind us of your awesome deeds. Father, you spoke this world into existence. You brought us here together today. You hold the stars in your hand, Father. Help us to be overwhelmed with who you are. And Lord, as, we, as I read this, I have to confess that there are far too often times in my own heart and my life where I know the right things, Lord, but sometimes it doesn't communicate down into my heart. Lord, please forgive me for that. Forgive us. Forgive us for giving you lip service rather than pure worship. I pray that that would not be the case this morning. Lord, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you for your forgiveness. I thank you for your faithfulness in spite of our faithlessness. Lord, I, I pray once again for our brother, uh, Tom Camella, and his family, Lord. Uh, Lord, I pray for the doctors. Um, Father, he has had such a battle over these last four weeks. Lord, I pray that you would lay your hand of comfort upon his body and healing upon his body and wisdom for the doctors and comfort for his family. Lord, we think of those that are grieving in our congregation, Father. 
Father, as we, we go weeks past, um, the pain is still there, and the pain is so great for them, Lord. I pray that you would be comforting them with your mercy, comforting them with your love. Thank you for the healing that you've provided for many here in this congregation. I pray that you would continue to do so. I pray for Diana Kelly, Father. I pray that you would comfort her right now and give wisdom to her. And Lord, I pray today that you would help us to magnify you, hear from your spirit, be led by your spirit, empowered by your word, giving glory to your son. In Jesus' matchless name we pray.
Jesus is my life. Jesus is all we have is you. Thank you so much for the truth and the songs that we just sang this morning. seasons of corporate worship with all of us here and more of us here and uh, it is a joy to sing and hear singing coming from behind you and uh, in that is the means that by, by the spirit through which we sing to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs making melody in our hearts to the Lord and to do that in music that is deeply centered on biblical truth is uh, a great joy. So thank you for singing with me together this morning. I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, we're going to work our way through half of this passage this morning. Uh, Doug, that's my indication to you that I am splitting this passage in half, Okay. Doug and I were talking about this on Friday, and I was working through my sermon prep, and I'm like, yeah, this, this needs to be divided uh, <clears throat> for the purposes of an appropriate focus on it. So uh, Ephesians 5.21, you know, there are topics uh, that make pastors nervous to preach on, and there are topics that I find exciting to preach on. This is one that first makes me nervous, and then I get excited about it. Um, our goal as pastors is to provide sound biblical teaching, not our opinions. Paul encourages us as a leadership team to preach the word and to be, in, to be instant or ready in season and out of season. That literally means when it is acceptable to the public hearing and when it is not, continue to teach God's word. So this morning we're going to enter into an topic that is admittedly controversial for some, often because of the types of experiences that people have had. Uh, role relationships in the home is a topic that can be painful. Some caught in difficult marital situations or have had sad experiences in abusive relationships. I, as I speak, I'm aware of that concern. Uh, having pastored for 35 years, I am pretty aware of the types of struggles that people face. It doesn't mean that I have experienced all of those struggles, so I don't want to act like I can empathize as much as I can say I understand the difficulties that are often present and that are all at times very complex. As pastors, we don't have the luxury of avoiding topics that are uncomfortable especially ones that are so important that it, and that affect all of our lives so deeply. Here's the truth when it comes to discussions about husbands, wives, and families. We are all part of a family structure that's unavoidable. 
All of us uh, find our origin, physically speaking, in the context of a relationship between a man and a woman. Biblically, the preferred context is between a husband and wife in a deeply committed, exclusive relationship. Some of the experiences that we have had are healthy, and some of the experiences that we have had are unhealthy. None of them are all of either of those, to be honest. If you spend much time looking at the state of marriage in the Western world, you will not find it to be very encouraging. Divorces rampant, cohabitation as a result uh, of fear is on the rise, and many marriages are struggling. The impact is far-reaching, meaning the, that, that, that disintegration of the family unit is having an impact on the culture and the reach of that disintegration is deep into people's lives. I read a Gallup poll a few days ago and the conclusion was that many young adults express distaste for or fear of marriage. Their pain and personal experience is so raw that they no longer see the value of marriage, which I believe is profoundly sad news for children and the next generation. The conclusion of the poll is that most see marriage as irrelevant. Today, only 40% of adults surveyed believe that you should get married if you plan to stay together for life. 40%. In 2006, that number was 20% higher. Because I want you to think about that. In the process of 16 years, people that believe they are going to be together for life, only 40% of them believe that marriage is an important component of that being together. While, mar while the marriage rate is declining dramatically, the desire of those who have never been married, and this is what I find fascinating, the desire of those who have never been married to get married someday remains high. Here's a fascinating statistic. 40% of people believe that marriage is wise if you intend to spend life together, meaning a permanent relationship. But 8 out of 10 individuals who are single in Western cultures, eight out of 10 hope to get married. Okay, I want you to think about that for a minute. 40%, only 40% believe that marriage is an essential, relevant institution for life together. And yet eight out of 10, double that amount, Hope one day to get married and to be in a stable relationship. I find that fascinating. Eight out of ten are saying this. I want it to be true. I want the happiness that is intended in the context of marriage to be my personal experience. My observation to every wedding ceremony that I attend is this. People are making promises that are large that are comprehensive, that are exclusive. And every person sitting in the crowd wants that to be true. Why? Because there is something about those large, categoric, exclusive promises to commitment to life together. There is something about those promises that is attractive to human nature. 
that is attractive to a, to a man and to a woman. To be part of something like that is something that we have an innate and deep longing for. And the question is why? Why is that true? And I believe it's true because of this. Because God created in the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, God created one institution of all the things he created, he created one institution for the welfare and happiness of people. He looked at Adam being alone and concluded that it was not good, so he made a helpmeet for him, and Adam's response to that is, at last, at last I have found someone with whom I will be complete and someone with whom I can enjoy the rest of my life. The Bible starts with a wedding. And that wedding is a joyful celebration of life together. Yesterday, I received a text from a young man in our church named Dylan. And Dylan's sitting over here in the front row. And I got a text that simply said this, it's official. I said, oh, what could that mean? All right. So why don't you two quick stand? And we'll make it official, okay? Dylan and Anna, uh, you guys can quick stand, okay? All right, so we can congratulate them. They got engaged. All right, thank you. So we are uh, very excited for them. And, and I'm studying this text and I get that text. That's an interesting statement, right? I get that text about... It's official. Now here's the question. Is that good news? Is that happy news? Is that to be sold? Yes. Right? I mean, that's not a real question. Okay? It, 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 it's certainly, it is a cause for celebration. Why? All of us are reacting not to the potential problems, but to the potential of that relationship. That if it is guided by God's truth and lived out according to God's standards and directives, it is a hopeful thing. It is a joyful thing. Dylan's text to me was not bad news. It was good news. It was meant to be a note of celebration and a cause for joy and happiness. It was him expressing what was building up in his heart in relationship to the new relationship that he and Anna desire to move in together by God's design and God's purpose. Today, we're going to begin discussing the most extensive text in the New Testament on marital roles. It, it is in Ephesians 5, 21 through verse 33. And I want to begin reading in verse 21. The text says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their own husbands in everything. And then just verse 25, husbands, love your wives. As Christ loved the church... And gave himself up for her. Now, I know that when the word submit is used, it conjures up a lot of 
various emotions in people's hearts. Many struggle here, and I get that. I've seen the best, and I've seen the worst. And I would argue as I look at this topic that our problem is not with authority implied in submission, but it is with the abuse of it. The fact is, we all submit to some level of authority. The Bible clearly establishes structure and authority in all of our lives. We see it in parent-child relationships. We see it in government and citizen relationships. At a broader level, we see it with a coach and a player on a team. We see it in a school setting with the teacher and students. We see it in employer and employee relationships. I experienced submission on Friday. I was driving down Route 57 with my wife, and I recognized that a state trooper was following me, which I don't know why I always respond negatively to that instead of being encouraged that they're there for our protection and to make sure everything's good. All of a sudden, he puts his lights on. My response was not to be deeply offended by the suggestion that I should submit to the authority implied by the lights that were on in his car. Okay, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't ticked off. Like, who does he think he is? So I pulled over to the right and uh, I submitted to the authority that was present. Now, I know you're all wondering, why did that happen? Well, he went around me. He was just simply <laughs> trying to get somewhere, okay? And that is the honest truth. But I, the, the, the simple illustration for me is I was thinking of that experience in relationship to preaching on this idea of authority and coming under. I didn't find it offensive that there was an expression of authority. I simply responded to it. And honestly, I'm thankful that there are people that are there to protect our well-being, that that job exists. I'm grateful for that. Okay, And just because sometimes there's abuse in those realms doesn't mean we should throw out the baby with the bathwater. Okay? Sometimes we need to bail and preserve what's present instead of throwing everything out. Okay? And the same thing is true in relationship to the idea of authority in the context of marriage. The sad truth is that many have been impacted by negative examples of husbands and wives that demand, that insist, that abuse, that use anger to control. We tend to reject the structure that God has given in homes because we are jaded by the prevalence of a selfishness, of abuse, and of authoritative mates who weaponize text like the one in front of us. That is not the tenor or the tone or the purpose or appropriate use of these texts. That simply is using a text to justify selfish or demeaning behavior. And the Bible clearly mitigates against that, particularly in how this text is described. Now, verse 21 is really the end of the previous portion that goes back to verse 18, where Doug spoke on this last week, where the, the, the church is encouraged to be filled with the Spirit with the result that we sing to one another, that we give thanks, and that we submit to one another. So there is first, by the presence of the Spirit of God, this call to mutual submission. That is to mutually prefer one another above ourselves. That's the, the idea of this text. 
that we see needs that are present and we meet needs. And in doing that, we are upholding the New Testament standard for relating in the body of Christ. And it is in this setting, following off of this need for spirit fullness, for spirit-driven love and spirit-driven virtues, it's in that context that Paul then leads into a discussion about marriage, which tells me what? Marriage is not something I do in my own strength. Marriage, if it is to, if it is to be done in a way that is biblical and that is God-honoring and nurturing for all involved, it must come under God's authority and God's direction. So the question we need to ask is this, what does God say about the center of families, that is the husband-wife relationship. How does he say that relationship should work, look, and function? And the answer to that question comes in verse 22. What does the, the question here is, what does the Bible say to the wife and what does the Bible say to the husband? How do they mutually serve one another in a way that honors God and provides the best and healthiest setting for the children that come into that home. How does that happen? So verse 21 begins, and the direction is very clear. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And I want to say, ladies, be patient. Okay? If you have a tendency to reject that truth, which at some levels I can understand why you might. I want to encourage you to wait for the balancing point, okay? Because right now it might seem like, whoa, okay? But when you bring into line the biblical truth that God has for the husband, you'll see that it's not out of balance. In fact, you might end up agreeing if you look at it clearly that the husband's role is more difficult when properly understood than, in, than is the wife's role, okay? I, I just put that out there as a, as a caution to not react to the abuse of this text or the weaponizing of this text that you may have seen, and it does exist, okay? I've seen it personally, okay? And in my own attitude towards my wife at times, I am probably at times guilty of not loving her as I should. So what does this word submit mean? The word indicates a voluntary choice to recognize the husband's God-given role. It is to encourage and respect his leadership. Okay, that's the essence of this word. It also pulls off of a bit of a military image of a soldier who enlists and yields up his rights and independence in order to follow the lead of the person that will be in charge of him. It, is, it indicates this kind of, of a structure that's present in which I realize that I have a responsibility to walk in obedience to this authority, okay? But it is a voluntary, not contrived. It's not a forced response. It's not a demanded response. It is a voluntary response to a God-ordained structure. It's different than 
wives, obey your husbands. Because you can go to Ephesians chapter 6. The next text will call children to obey their parents in the Lord. And that word is a different word. Okay? So, so there's somewhat of a, of, a, of a volunteering, of a surrendering of rights in order to follow the lead of the husband. Okay? So that's verse uh, 22, the beginning. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. And it's, 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 it's interesting uh, in how this lays out. It is a practical encouragement to encourage the lead of the pattern in verse 23 is the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. That's the rationale. So the way Paul states it is wives submit for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the savior. And it becomes interesting. This idea of headship, okay, and there's there's some debate, but I think if you look through this very carefully, you're going to find that the idea of headship clearly in context implies some degree of authority and responsibility to lead. Look at verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, okay, so the church is where in relationship to Jesus? The church is not equal to Jesus. The church comes under the authority of Jesus who is a loving leader, and in the same way, a wife is called to do what? To come under the loving leadership of her husband. Okay, so the, the, the idea is clearly one of, there is a structure, there is a God-given authority that is presented in this text. It's also interesting to notice in verse 23 that he says that Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the savior. And there's no way in the New Testament that you can read the word savior without understanding that that prompts ideas of the selfless sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And that starts to bring in a little bit of an understanding of the nature of the husband's role in leading his wife. It is a leadership that is savior-like that has rescue and sacrifice in mind, seeking someone's best in mind. So what does this mean at a practical level? Okay, what is this pattern of submission as the church responds to Christ, so a wife responds to her husband? What does that mean at a practical level? Here's what I think it means. I think it means that in life's decisions, in the context of the family, the husband has a final say and responsibility. He is not ultimate, only God is. Okay? But in the context of family life, when push comes to shove and, and you just can't quite figure out which direction you're going to move in, the husband as the leader of the home has a final say. When you disagree, wives, let him have the final say. And men, I would say, to use that leadership with a high degree of discretion. Okay? If for some reason your life partner is uncomfortable with the direction that you desire to move in, that should give you pause. You do have the responsibility for final say, but you must use that 
leadership role with a high degree of spirit-filled discretion so that you don't slip into the context of dominating or abusing your mate. Okay, and I think that's the, 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 the subtle yet profound implication of this. So let me illustrate. You're looking at a significant purchase in the home. Maybe it's buying a stove, okay? And you're trying to figure out which kind of stove, and the wife says, well, I like this. Husband says, I like this. But the one that she wants is $5,000 and is going to threaten the stability of the family financially. So the husband, I think in that kind of a setting, would have the responsibility to guide that discussion towards a wise conclusion that is beneficial not for himself, but for the good of his family. Okay, And I think that's where the Christ is the savior of the church. He is the one who has deep interest, selfless interest, sacrificial interest in what is best for the church. And for that reason, we respond to him understanding that he has a position of authority and leadership in our lives. Does that make sense? Okay, so husbands, there are times where you, you have to make a decision. But when you make that decision, when you exercise or play that trump card, you must do it with deep discretion and humility in order to be the man that God has called you to be. Okay, it is never heavy-handed and demanding. Verse 24 is interesting. It says, now as the church submits to Christ, so wives also should, should submit to their husbands in everything. Our response to Jesus as the church informs the wife's response to her husband. Okay? My response as a member of God's church to Jesus informs the wife's response to her husband. Okay? And that, that, that becomes a very important point here. The, the text ends by saying that they should submit to their husbands in everything. And I think what that means and what that indicates is a willing support of his God-given role, affirming, respecting, while not tolerating sin, to submit is to encourage his Christ-like leadership. And to do that in everything is to indicate a disposition, a bent, a direction, a tendency. Okay? Does that make sense? So that, that, that it's to look at the, that broader picture of that relationship and to understand that I best honor my husband and encourage his leadership when I am demonstrating a disposition, a desire to see him become the best leader that he can possibly be. Now, that first portion of this text provokes some questions, right? So let me give some qualif qualifiers or clarifications because of the misuse that is often present, okay? Uh, my favorite way of thinking about this is this. Electricity is a wonderful thing, okay? But when I look at the, uh, the electrical... Uh, high voltage connection areas in my community. I noticed that they are well fenced in and have signs on them that indicate danger. Okay, now I use electricity every day. Okay, I benefit from it. I benefited from it this morning. The first thing I typically do when I wake up is turn on the coffee pot. All right, and electricity produces benefit. That electricity that is producing benefit has the capacity to wound and damage as well. Okay? 
And so the same thing is true in relationship to this husband-wife relationship in a sinful world where a husband may tend to abuse, overuse, and dominate. What are the, what are the precautions that arise as you look at this call to come under authority that can bless you, but may also have at times harmed you. That's the difficulty. God called that man to protect, to lead, to guide. He is abusing. How do you respond to that? So these are the clarifiers I want to give. Number one, roles and positions do not determine value, okay? Roles and positions in the context of the home do not determine individuals' value. Now, I'm gonna use uh, John Whitehead as an, as an illustration. John Whitehead is the executive for Ark of Warren County, okay? That does not mean that he is more valuable than his employees or clients. It simply means that he has a different set of responsibilities, and objectives that he has been called to fulfill, okay? In Genesis 2, Eve is created as a helper suitable. The idea there is, is a counterpart to her husband, not a person of lesser value. They have different roles and different functions. Their value is not determined by their roles. She is not inferior to him. She simply has a different obligation. Now, you can also see this in the context of the of the Godhead, okay? In Philippians 2, Jesus, though fully God, humbly submits to his Father's will. He is not different than, in essence than his Father. He just is coming to fulfill a different role or purpose. It is not to say that Jesus is lesser God or less than God. He is equal and to be worshiped, honored, adored, praised. But when he comes, what does he do? If he, Philippians 2 says, though he was God, he did not cling to his position. He humbled himself in obedience to God, even to death on the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what do you see? You see the Son of God deferring to his Father in heaven to go to the cross. Not because he is of lesser value, but because Christ in his coming to earth had a different mission and function, and he deferred to his father's will, the book of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him. And both the husband's role and the wife's role in the context of the home are informed by Jesus's attitude. We fulfill different roles by design, but roles are not a matter of superiority or inferiority. Right? That's why in Galatians, Paul can say, in the context of the church, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek. Right? He goes through that listing. He's not saying that there isn't a difference in function, but what he is saying is there is no difference in value. Okay? So that everybody comes in on the same footing. Uh, someone may be in a position of leadership in their workplace. Someone may be an employee in the workplace. They don't have different value. They simply have different roles and functions. Secondly, a wise man values his partner's strengths, gifting, and input. A wise man knows 
that he has weaknesses and that his wife has strengths. In the context of our marriage, my wife is excellent with detailed things. She is durable. She is kind. She's patient. And she's emotionally strong. And I'm not. I tell people often, uh, if, if one of us has to go, okay, meaning face the end of their life, I pray that it's me, okay? Because I have a wife that is quite capable and quite strong. And I think she would fare better if God should choose to take one of us. I think she would fare far better than me because those are the gifts and the strengths that she brings into our relationship. I am a fool if I don't understand and value and see those gifts unleashed in the context of our home. Okay, so, so the fact that I have a position or responsibility of leadership does not in any way imply that my wife is of lesser value or importance to the team. I'm pretty sure, I give you permission, if you see my daughters, if you ask them who has had the greater impact on their lives, Pretty sure I know the answer to that question. Now, somewhat more specifics because this topic promotes a lot of questions. This idea of the role of a leader and the role of a helper are very clear in scripture in relationship to the male-female relationship. For the husband, 1 Timothy tells us that the husband is more often exhorted to lead, to provide and protect in the context of the home. And first Peter would, would indicate more directly that the wife is, is given the role of supporting and encouraging, Titus 2, more directly and more often nurturing children in the home and in life. There are general principles like that that are present, okay? But in every culture, particularly ancient culture compared to modern culture, it's very interesting to determine how these truths, how these understandings of role relationships work out. The Bible does not give us a list of things that a wife should do and that a husband should do in the house. It doesn't give any specifics on cooking, on cleaning, on the checkbook, on finances, on the types of work. The particular applications of these principles are to be determined by people in their culture but the principle still must be brought into that decision-making process, okay? So sometimes we're like, boy, I wish God would just list out, here's the things a husband should do, here's the things a wife should do. Well, he does somewhat, right? He calls the wife to come under the authority and leadership and direction of her husband. He calls the husband to sacrificially and selflessly serve the needs of his family. And I think the idea is this, do that in all ways possible. Okay, always be honoring the general principles. So let's quickly move to the next section in verse 25 and just, just want to pick off one verse. Okay, so we see this idea that a husband should encourage his wife's yielding to their leadership, make it a pleasure for her, be a leader she can trust as she seeks to follow her God-given and fulfill her God-given calling and role. The husband's role comes second in verse 25. I'm just going to pick off one verse here. The text says, husbands, 
Love your wives as Christ loves the church. The most interesting thing to me in this portion of scripture is that you will not find the husband commanded to lead. It's interesting. Okay, you find this idea that the wife should come under her husband as head, and that's the implied leadership, right? If the husband is given headship or a position of authority, the implication is that he will naturally lead his wife. And I think that's why the text doesn't even tell the husband to lead. It is implied in the person of Christ, in the work of Christ, in the selfless sacrifice of Christ. It is implied that the husband is functioning in that fashion. And I find that fascinating about this text. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, the command to love in verse 25 covers one sentence that is 25 through 27. Okay, so there's, there's three verses. I think it's about 49 words that are governed by that command. Husbands... Love your wife. Love like Jesus loves. And it's interesting in the, in the culture that Paul lived in, this idea of a husband sacrificing for and deferring to his wife would have been an abhorrent thought. So to drive it home in the Christian community, Paul draws on the example of Jesus as a foil or as a picture of what the husband's leadership role should look like in the context of the home. Christ's selfless love here is the standard that the husband is called to. Literally, it says this, the husband is to give himself up for the benefit and for the advantage of his wife. Men, in the context of your marriage, you exist in your role as leader to protect, to provide for, and to lead your wife. And that leadership is to be typified by the sacrifice of Jesus. Now I want to I want to look at two examples of this Christ-like love and leadership from the Gospels. You, guys, you all remember the text in John 13. Okay, where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, where the one who is Lord and master disrobes, puts on the attire of a servant and washes his disciples' feet, much to their dismay. In doing this, Jesus completely flipped the paradigm of leadership on its head. Right? Jesus called out the, the, the Pharisees, didn't he? He said, you Pharisees love to parade around and have the applause of people. You love the praise of men. Right? And so, so that position of authority is a means by which you aggrandize your own life and by which you, you, you get your comings from life by that applause that's given to you. But he says to them, it shouldn't be this way among you. Instead, our role as leaders should typify the selfless sacrifice of Christ for the church. So in John 13, Jesus says this, after he washes the feet of the disciples to their total dismay, he says, do you understand what I did for you? And I think the implication very simply is, yeah, 
It's why we objected. The leader was washing the feet of the people he leads. And in the ancient world, it wasn't that way. In the context of the home, it was typical for a husband to marry for its utilitarian purposes and for the sensual benefits. It was not to love his wife and to sacrifice for her. It was the utilitarian purpose that she could fulfill in making him look more important or better or more satisfied in his life. It was a user relationship rather than a servant relationship. Jesus says, do you understand what I did for you? And he clarifies, he says, you call me teacher and Lord. You are right, that is what I am. So Jesus is saying, your objection, culturally speaking, absolutely appropriate. You are spot on. And then he says this, and this is where the gospel flips things on their head. He says, if I, your master, washed your feet, if I, and this is where this word comes in, if I submitted to you, if I met your most menial, subservient need, He says, you ought to wash each other's feet. Meaning, you were put off by my coming down so low. Jesus says, if the master washed your feet, you ought to. You have an obligation to. So men, here's the, here's the thrust. In my leadership, I am never separated from the call to serve like Jesus. In fact, in this text, Jesus says, you ought to do what I did. I have left you an example, not to admire, but to follow. Folks, let me say something very clear this morning. It is easy for the church to admire Jesus. I love the song that we sang, All I Have is Christ. I have great admiration for the work of Christ. But if that admiration never leads to transformation of heart that displays itself in an imitation of Jesus in my daily life, I am not the husband that God wants me to be. If I see my relationship to my wife as anything that is personally beneficial and I demand that benefit and that's the reason I live, that's what drives me, that's what keeps me happy, I am missing the point of marriage. The point of marriage is that God has called the man to love like Christ, who came from a much higher position and went to a much lower position. You and I start here, and he calls us to go here. Do you see? He came from here and went here. He says to Tim, you're my son. You're the husband of Ruth. I want you to come here. Wash her feet. Care for her. Serve her. And let her response to your leadership be born out of delight and love and affection because she feels cared for as well. Do you see? So in the context of home, there is this idea of mutual submission and then this idea of submission to a leadership role. But it, 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 it's best understood in the context of this reciprocal nature of it that is found in verse 21. Submit to one another out of love for Christ. Care for one another. That's not set aside when you come into the marriage relationship and all of a sudden you're the head and she's the feet. It's a misunderstanding. 
It's never set aside. And it is the love of Christ and the example of Christ that we should not simply admire, though we should, right? But if it doesn't lead to following the example of Jesus, I've misunderstood the purpose of the text. Okay? So that text first. A good husband imitates and is marked by the selfless service of Jesus. Jesus also said in Mark 10, 43 through 45, he said, whoever wants to be leader, okay, so you're marriage-minded, you want to fulfill that God-given calling as a husband. Here's what Jesus says. You must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve by giving his life a ransom for many. Folks, listen. The whole purpose for Christ's coming was your saving by his selfless sacrifice. That's why in Mark 10, 45, he says, the Son of Man, exalted, did not come to be served, to say, bow to me. He came to serve by giving his life a ransom for many. And ladies, here's what I would say. I would say, a husband who loves Christ like that would be awesome to live with, right? Who deferred, who preferred, who never used his headship as a means to getting personal benefit, but instead who yielded himself to the purposes of God and the plan of God in the context of the home. And men, I just want to challenge you this. God is calling you to serve your wife. That's how he wants you to lead. To understand that you have a position, but you also have a function. Okay? It's to give guidance and headship. It's to expect that your wife would come under that authority and, and, and to encourage you in that authority to look like Jesus Christ. So my simple encouragements this morning are these. Number one, ladies, encourage your husband's leadership by following it freely and fully. Men, lead like Jesus. Be like Christ, study Christ, understand Christ, and do everything that he did in your relationship with your wife. The key to avoiding distortion of your role is that you never use your leadership role to please yourself. Okay, I never use that position that God has given me for self-aggrandizement and for selfish purposes. God has called me into that role as a place from which I can, in a very profound and beautiful way, express love towards my wife. Jesus in the gospel, put my needs above his very life. Husbands, put your wife and the needs of your family ahead of your own. Be the kind of loving leader that your wife can safely and gladly follow and encourage the leadership of. Nothing fits us for this marriage relationship like the gospel. Because the gospel, the good news 
of Christ, of his work on the cross for our saving, for our benefit, it, what does it do? It humbles me. It makes me tolerable by exposing the depth of my sinful tendency. All right? So when I understand the cross work of Jesus, what do I become aware of? I become aware of how sinful I am, so sinful that it required the saving sacrifice of Jesus on Calvary's cross for my rescue. Okay, I, 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 I understand that. Okay, that I was so sinful that the Son of God had to come and willingly came and lay down his life for my rescue. It exposes the depth of my sinful tendency. But when I step back and sing it and understand it and glory in it, you know what it does? It fills me with more love than I could ever imagine. Okay? So it exposes my sinfulness, and yet it was done for me. And when I understand that I can be totally and freely forgiven by the work of Christ, that selfless work of Christ on Calvary's cross, you know what it does? It fills me with a sense of love that is overwhelming and life-changing. Do you see why God says to husbands, husbands, love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? He, he gave his entire existence, his entire being, his perfect sinless life. He laid it down freely out of love so that you could be freed from your sin and brought into relationship with him. Let that love of Christ overwhelm and then let it overflow out of your life into those around you. In your home, let your family live in the overflow of God's love. That's why John, toward the ends of his life, said this. He said, we know what real love is. Because Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to give up our lives for others. You know what that means at a very practical level in this discussion? It means that a husband should be bent on Christ-like love for his wife. And he should be devoted to selfless love with his children in a way that glorifies and honors and magnifies Jesus. You know, at the beginning, we noted that there is a flickering hope in the next generation for the value and relevance of marriage. And I believe that as you work through this text and as you begin to pursue orienting your life to the general principles that are present here, wives gladly honoring the husband's leadership role and encouraging it, husbands sacrificially loving and leading their wives. I believe that when we do that, and when we commit to that, and when we devote ourselves to that, by the power of the Spirit of God, we give hope to the next generation. Okay? So, so, so be careful. Don't reject the roles. Embrace them, but embrace them joyfully so that when people look at our homes, when they look at our marriages, they see a reflection of what God designed and intended. And all of that is driven by a robust understanding of the love that God has for sinners like you and me and by an understanding of the incredible love that Christ has shown towards us through the cross. Let that saving, redeeming love Inform your relationship with your mate as you seek to be the couple, to be the family that God designs for you to be. Would you pray with me?
Father, this morning we have looked at a difficult passage of Scripture. Uh, one that can be for many of us intimidating. One that can prompt for many a lot of questions. But Lord, as we come to the cross and we understand what true leadership is in the sacrifice of Christ, we are drawn to the potential joy and pleasure of marriage. Lord, all of us is sat at a wedding ceremony and in our hearts, even if involuntarily, we have wanted the promises to be true because they are beautiful and glorious. Lord, make the truth and beauty of marriage clear to us through the crosswork of Jesus Christ. When we struggle, Lord, help us to get back to the cross. When we see our sin, our failure, and our roles, help us to get back to the cross and understand that we are loved in the beloved Jesus Christ. And Jesus, thank you that you are such a powerful and clear example of the kind of men that you would like women to submit to and help us to pursue that with all of our hearts. God, forgive us where we have been passive. Forgive us where we have been harsh. And please teach us by your spirit to love like Jesus loves. For the good of our homes, for the good of our wives, for the good of our children, and for good of the church that we have been called to be part of. We pray these blessings in the beautiful name of Jesus and all God's people say, amen.
my life he led thy Christ who hold me fast justice has been satisfied he will hold me fast raise with Thank you that you do hold us fast. Thank you so much for this, this message this morning on a difficult topic that, God, we just thank you so much for the institution of marriage and for the ways in which it brings glory to you. We ask that <clears throat> this week uh, you would help us to meditate on these things, God, to better bring glory to your name to a watching world and in our own families. And we uh, pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great week.